0: Hey, this is Dan Reeves. I'm the lead pastor of Journey Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Welcome to our podcast. Before we get going, we just wanna take a moment to thank you for tuning in. We believe that you matter, not only to us, but to Jesus. Our hope is that you find something new and life-giving in Him today. Here's today's message. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Y'all good? Hey, it's good to see you guys. Uh, Hey, if you're new with us, my name is Dan and I'm the pastor here. So good to see you guys. See a few new faces in the house. Always uh, glad when people come through, if you're visiting or you're looking for a church home or just exploring faith, uh, whatever's brought you here. uh, I'm just really glad that you chose to take a part of your Sunday, part of your week uh, to be uh, here with us. Uh, I don't know about you, but I was a little transported back singing that last song uh, to a lot of moments in my life where I just remember the greatness of God and his plan and what he's working out uh, in his creation. And uh, that's what we build our faith on uh, is Jesus Christ, uh, his faithfulness and the assurance that comes from that. So if you'd like to know more about that, uh, if you don't have that assurance, we would always like to uh, have that conversation with you and just uh, sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about what we believe to be true and uh, the hope that we find in Christ. You can help us out with that if you are new. Uh, There's a connection card in the seat back in front of you. Uh, There's some boxes at the exits. You can drop it there or stop by the Welcome Center. They would love to give you a, a free gift just to say our way Thanks for being here. And then also, if you're worshiping with us online, really glad that you're here as well. Uh, you can drop something in the chat. We'll send you a message just say thanks for being here uh, as well. Hey, I want to catch up on one thing uh, tonight or this afternoon, I guess, probably more appropriately. We're having our first uh, ever uh, church wide QA on sermon series. Um, one thing that we've been talking about for a long time is how to better create a dialogue around Scripture. Uh, we believe that Scripture is our authority and uh, we uh, come around it and come under it, uh, but it takes a lot of work for us in community, I think, in these days to come together around that. So to, the, today at 4 p.m., uh, we're going to have a Q&A uh, that has directly pertaining to the last three messages. So Genesis 1 through 3, Ephesians 5, and then today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, and there's so much stuff in there that you can't really uh, do it all and uh, do it justice uh, in a message. There's a lot of questions that arise from that. Um, and so we want to have those dialogue in community and ask questions. And so we've allotted uh, a couple of hours to set out, have some refreshments, uh, come together. Uh, if that interests you on any level, uh, you can come and you have an opportunity to ask uh, any question you want about those three passages. and uh, we'll dig into it together. Open Scripture, look at those and see what the Spirit uh, teaches us through His word. So hopefully you can make it for that. I think we already have like 70 people uh, signed up for that, so that's awesome. Uh, we're planning on, if we can all fit. I think we will be able to, in the, the room back here on the corner where our college and our junior high groups meet on Sunday morning. So uh, anyway, I uh, hope to see you there. Uh, This afternoon at 4 o'clock. Hey, we are in the middle of a series. We're in the third part, uh, our third installment of a series called Men, Women in the Kingdom of God, Reclaiming God's Vision for His Image Bearers. And we're tackling uh, a lot of scriptures that quite honestly... within the context of church, I don't know that I, on some of these that I've really heard taught myself. I've been uh, preaching for almost 30 years now, and uh, I can probably count on one hand the number of times uh, that I have heard some of these messages. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think that I, in all my going to church, have ever heard uh, a message in su- on a Sunday morning on the passage that I'm getting ready to uh, work through with you today. And I think the reason for that, you're going to find out, it's a pretty complicated passage. It's 1 Corinthians Chapter 11. We're going to look at one through 16. Uh, sometimes we do uh, a lot more scripture than that. Sometimes a little bit. This is going to be a haul. This is going to be a lot of stuff. So, uh, kind of put on, uh, you know, buckle up, put on your seatbelts. We got a lot of uh, ground to cover. But today we are. <clears throat> turning the corner uh, a little bit because we're really kind of doing a little bit of a series within a series that this week and the next two week installments are really dealing with the, the role of women in worship inside the church gathering, inside the house churches uh, of the first century. Um, and so there's a lot of questions that arise from that uh, and there's a lot of language that we're going to have to wrap our minds around in that. So it's this little series within a series. Today we're going to tackle these 16 verses, do our best to get through it. Um, and so we'll kind of see where we end up as far as time goes at the end. You know, you all know. If you've been here, you know. If you don't know, don't worry about it. You'll be okay. All right. Um. But 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to hang out. I put 1031 up there because we're, we like to get a little bit of a running start. But let me, uh, let me dive in. It's always a little bit difficult when we don't preach through a whole letter. Uh, if you are new to Scripture, realize that the Bible uh, is not one book. It's a collection of books, collection of letters, collection of writings. It's put together and bound together. Or some of you have it on a phone or a computer, laptop, iPad, something like that. Uh, but it is a collection of ancient writings that we believe that God authoritatively spoke through human writers to give us his thoughts, his revelation about the way that of who he is and how we're supposed to live. Uh, and so we lean into it every week when we come together. So we spend a lot of our time in it. But when we look in 1 Corinthians, we have to recognize, first of all, what it is. So let me just give you a brief rundown. Uh, if you're new to Scripture, this will help. If you're um, if you're kind of a veteran with Scripture, this will be a good reminder. Let's go on to this. Um, the genre of this particular writing, this passage we're looking at, is in 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 the context of a letter. Okay, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a situation that's going on in a specific church. Okay, the what's happening at the church, there's a lot of things going on. And Paul, uh, much like last week, we looked at a a portion of a letter that he wrote to a group of churches in uh, modern day Turkey and Asia Minor. This is to a collection of house churches in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a metropolitan area. Uh, It was teeming with life. There was a lot of diversity there. Uh, People had come to faith there, obviously, uh, but we all know this, right? That church is not always easy, and at Corinth, it certainly was not easy. There was a a slew of problems uh, in this church, and so uh, in in large part, what Paul is doing is he's writing a a corrective letter. This letter is actually a corrective, okay? Okay. And what he's going to do is he's heard a lot of different situations that are going on, and he's an apostle. Um, And so what he's doing is he's speaking into these situations specifically. It's a little bit different than last week with uh, the letter to Ephesians, which was basically just kind of a general letter that was circulated. This one is very pointed. Uh, He has received information, things that are happening there, and he sat down to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and say, well, here's what we need to do to fix this grounding it all in theology, grounding it all in doctrine, and grounding it all in understanding of how now they're supposed to live out the implications of the gospel. And they've got some problems. Let me just give you uh, a little bit of a rundown of some of the problems that they were, they were going to correct. Uh, if we'll just throw that whole list up there, I think I've got a list of all the things that were going on up to here. First, it started out there was a division. There's a lot Right? You see it real quick. Uh, if you thought your church experience was bad, move to Corinth, okay? Uh, because there was a lot going on. First thing that happened, there was a lot of divisions that were going on within the church over which leader to follow. Uh, there was a group of people that were faithful to Paul and there were some that were faithful to another apostle named Apollos and people kind of divided in their camps and say, we like this one, we like this one. And Paul writes to him and says, listen, there is no foundation other than Jesus Christ. And so I don't care if you follow me or Apollos, we are were, we were all serving the same God. So he's correcting a problem. There was also a situation where there was a man that was sleeping with his father's wife and it was being accepted in the church. And so Paul writes and he says, hey, that's not okay. And here's why, which you know, obviously you would think Well, that's pretty logical, right? But apparently to them, it wasn't so logical. So he gives them an understanding. He corrects the behavior, sets them on the right path. There were people that were cheating and stealing from each other, uh, and it was ending in lawsuits. And so, uh, you know, somebody would steal something or take something from somebody else or cheating somebody out of money and uh, they, weren't, they weren't treating each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and so they were going to court, they were suing one another and Paul says, man, this is unbecoming, this is harmful to the advancement of the gospel. You're, you're marring the image of Christ within Corinth. You're, th- you're kind of quenching the spirit and what the spirit wants to do uh, in Corinth. Uh, there was a lot more cases of immorality that he references and he kind of gives some blanket statements to that uh, there's debate about food sacrificed to foreign idols. Uh, and so they were wondering, what should we do? Some people thought it was okay to eat this, um, this uh, food that was sacrificed to idols. Some others didn't. And so there were these camps within the church and they were arguing about, well, is it this way or it's that way? And Paul was saying, listen, do whatever you got to do to come together on this because here's the thing is we're trying to advance the gospel. And then he kind of lands uh, in verse—I mean, excuse me—in chapter eight and following about some. There were grumbling and complaining. There was just a lot of murmuring, and he takes them back uh, to the Old Testament story of the people of God in the wilderness. And he basically says, "Hey, listen! A lot of people died in in the wilderness for all, for complaining like you're doing. So be careful. Uh, we've been given some examples to follow so that we won't fall into the same traps. And so, you know, that's kind of a really brief overview. But you can see, right, on the surface what Paul's trying to do. Paul is writing a letter. He's seeing or hearing what's going on in Corinth. As an apostle, he has a responsibility and an accountability to call it out and to say, hey, here's what scripture says about it. Here's what God says about this. And here's what we need to do to continue the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so with all that being said, that's what leads us into Paul's next correction, which is where we're going to hang out. The next thing in the list that he uh, is correcting, if you're going to add the next thing, go on to the next slide real quick and we'll throw it up here for you. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, our primary text. This is the next thing that Paul is going to correct. He says that he's correcting the choices of the male prophets to cover their heads and women prophets to uncover their heads in public worship gathering in Corinth. So, This is a really silly example, but I thought it was a visual. And I don't have a veil, okay? But guess what I do have? A bath towel, okay? So uh, Veronica actually asked me just a second. She goes, are we baptized? And I said, no, I have an illustration. Okay, so... So here's the deal. Here's what's happening, okay? I'm going to show you a little bit. This is kind of obviously 2021 with a bath towel. But here's essentially what's happening. The church is gathering together, much like we're doing today, except for the fact that it's not somebody on a stage and a group of people sitting in chairs facing them, listening. It's a house church, right? And what was happening in the house church is, that we're going to learn, we learn this later in First Corinthians 12, that everybody's given gifts in the house church and they'd come together and they would all exercise their gifts for the mutual edification of the church. And so what was happening was some men that were praying and prophesying uh, and a prophet was basically one of the highest positions. As a matter of fact, Paul will later say uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which we'll get to next week, that uh, really prophet was only second to apostle. So you kind of had a pro- uh, apostles, prophets, teachers. And so the prophet within the local church gathering was one of, the, one of the major roles of edifying the church and speaking the word of God and instructing the church. And so what was happening, okay? They were in the house church and some men were getting up and they were doing this. They were getting up and they were praying and then they were prophesying with their heads covered, okay? Now here's what the women were doing. The women prophets were doing this. They would get up in front of the people, stand up to prophesy and pray, And they were uncovering their heads. And you're like, what in the world? Why are we studying this in 2021? Because I'm looking around the room and uh, I don't see anybody wearing veils, right? Uh, And so what is this? What's this all about? Well, we're going to get to exactly why this was such a big deal and why Paul felt like he needed to correct this particular behavior. I'm going to leave this on my shoulders for just a minute because it's kind of warm and I'm kind of cold. Okay. So here's what we're gonna do, all right? This is what's going on, right? But let's give ourselves a key. You know how when you, uh, you, old school, young people, you wouldn't understand this, but there used to be these things called maps, right? And you'd actually go on a trip and you would keep like a map or an atlas. I remember going to Chicago when Bronco and I first got married and we didn't have GPS. I mean, we had a map and we'd pull it out and there's always a key on the map, right? And the key helps you to understand the map. Uh, When you're in a foreign place, when you're in a foreign land, it's helpful to have a key. Uh, It gives you an understanding of the terrain, where to turn, all those kind of things. And we're about to step into the first century Corinth. OK, we are no longer in Jonesboro, Arkansas in 2021. We have gone into a time warp, and the way we understand scripture here, the way we break it down, we open it up. When we open scripture, we always have to realize that uh, though scripture was written for us, it's authoritative for us, it was not originally written to us. And the only way for us to understand what it actually means for us is to understand what was happening in the situation in which it was written. Who wrote it? Who they write it to? What was the situation that was going on? So to the best of our ability, we can take out the principles and apply them to our situation. So this is what's going on I've given you. So it'd probably be helpful to have the key. I think what Paul does at the end of chapter uh, chapter 10, verse 31, into chapter 11, verse 1, is he gives us the key for the map. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. Uh, you can see real quick, Paul's a missionary, right? He is, he is all about, if you read this letter or any others, he's like, what's it going to take for us to contextualize the gospel and advance this so that more people come to know Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, and are freed? Uh, from sin and death, okay? So he's talking about all this. Thing. So this is, this is his key. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Pretty simple, right? But it's important for us because what Paul's doing is he's talking about what he's done. He's building a bridge from everything he's talked about in this previous situation. And now he's building a bridge to help unpack this next situation that had everything to do with men covering their heads and women, oh, I forgot I had a microphone on my head, and women uncovering their heads when they're prophesying in the public gathering and when they're praying in the public gathering. So, all right, that's the key. I'm going to give you one more tool, and then we're really going to dig in and go really fast, but I'm going to cough. I'm going to turn this mic off for just a second so I can cough and not blow your ears out. it comes back on and we're good. All right, so here's what we have to know. I'm gonna throw a definition up here because what Paul's about to do is he's about to employ the use of a figure of speech called a metaphor. Welcome to English class, everybody on Sunday morning. All right, a metaphor is a figure of speech that pulls comparisons between two unrelated items, taking basically taking two non-similar things and drawing out a similarity to make a point. Now, it's important for us to understand that Paul was an excellent writer. Uh, he, was a, he was skilled in rhetoric, meaning that he knew how to make an argument, make a compelling argument. And metaphors help, I think, because uh, they, they say a lot that, uh, in a little bit of time. And they help us to see things in a new perspective. Uh, They're kind of punchy, they kind of stick with you, um, and so he's about to do that same thing. And Now, if you need another little uh, kind of a a, a warm-up for metaphors, let's get into metaphor speak. Let's look at a couple of famous ones real quick. Uh, We're going to go back a long time, you might remember this one, uh, what light through yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. Where's the metaphor in the sentence? Anybody know? Juliet and sun, right now is Juliet really the sun? No, she's not really that ball, that you know, that blazing star up in the sky. But what Romeo is actually saying in this is that he's saying that like, to me, she is like the sun. She is radiant and beautiful, and you know, I'm not a uh, literature person, but you can extrapolate what you want. He's he's using a metaphor to make a point. And, it, 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 you know, it's, it's stuck with us. This is one of the most famous things that, um, even if you don't remember Shakespeare, you've, uh, all of his plays, you probably have heard that, and it's probably stuck with you. But let's, let's look, a more contemporary one, of a, what I would say is an equally good group of writers named Rascal Flats. right? What? Life is a highway. I'm going to ride it all night long. Now, is life really a highway? No. But the metaphor is life is a highway. Now, it has qualities. It's not that it's asphalt and it has lines, but it's a journey, right? Um, And it's taking you somewhere. And so um, Rascal Flatts has made millions and millions of dollars off of that metaphor. It sticks with us, right? But some of y'all, you're not Rascal Flatts fans, but you are. How many children of the 80s do we have? How many of y'all were like children of the 80s? All right, this is for you. Love is a battlefield. Yes, it is. Somebody said, yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It can be. It can be, right? That's a metaphor, right? Uh, I, as, I, as I read that, my mind is actually, I mean, I want to sing the song, but we're not going to do that. But it, it sticks with you, right? It's a metaphor, and what uh, Pat was trying to say was that love can be difficult you know, it, it's a fight sometimes, uh, it's worth it in the sense that you're, you're, you're going after something that's important. Um, it sticks with you, it's a, it, it's a saying that helps us to understand some, a deeper truth, right? And it says a lot in a little bit of time. And then I'm going to give you one of my favorites from one of my favorite movies of all time. Well, of course I like her, she's a peach. Anybody know that one? Okay, this is just me. I just threw this in there because I say this, like, oh, she's a peach, you know? I use my really bad uh, Jimmy Stewart impersonation. Uh, He's talking about, uh, he's asked a question, well, do you like her? And she says, of course I like her. She's a peach, which means that she's not really a a fruit, right? Uh, But there's something that's nice about her, enjoyable about her. I like her like I would like a peach. She's like a peach right? And so we use these kind of things all the time. They're common to us, right? And here's the thing. When somebody writes a metaphor, who controls what the metaphor means? Does the listener control it or does the one writing it control it? The one writing it controls it. The one that's writing it is the one that's making the comparison of two dissimilar things or non-similar things, and he's putting them together and saying, Here's two unrelated objects that now I'm going to try to make a point from. So this is what Paul's about to do. He's about to employ a metaphor, okay? So what's his metaphor? Here it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 2 through 3. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding on to the traditions just as I passed them on to you, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God, okay? So this is his metaphor. Now, this, th- this um, verse has been the subject of a whole lot of scholarly work. So uh, I'm going to just kind of put my cards on the table right from the beginning. There, there's absolutely no way for me to exhaust all of the scholarship about this particular metaphor. There are a lot of people that have a lot of different opinions about what Paul's trying to say. Uh, many of them, I mean, have vast differences of opinion. But here's the thing there are scholars that are reputable, love Jesus, love scripture, um, uh, are honoring God, that come down in different places in their understanding of what this metaphor means. Why? Because uh, we're going back in ancient time. All right. Um, this is not Pat Benatar, right? Uh, this is not Rascal Flatts. This is not even William Shakespeare. We're going back to Paul in a specific situation in a church. He knew exactly what he was trying to say. And I think that the people in Corinth also knew exactly what he was trying to say. And I think it has everything to do with this, taking vows off or putting veils on. Okay? So here's some possibilities, okay? I want to be honest about this. There's some possibilities here. Um, One possibility is that head specifically means authority, rule, or ruler, uh, ruler, excuse me. Um, Guys like Wayne Grudem or Andreas Kossenberger, this is kind of where they land on it. Uh, This is to say, much like what we would do Today, when we say, well, uh, he's the head of a company or she's the head of a committee, um, you know, something of that nature, it kind of connotes in our mind that, oh, that person is the leader, that person is in authority, they are the ones that get to rule. Now, that's very common to us. I mean, if I say say the word uh, head of the team, you're gonna automatically, because this is the way that we think, this is the way we use typically the metaphor, okay? But if you survey ancient history, if you go through lexicons, extra biblical literature, the Septuagint, all those type of things, uh, if you go through all those uh, Jewish literature and writings, there are actually other usages that would have been common usages. One of those uh, who uh, Barrett and Fee are proponents of, they believe that it could mean that he is the source. Uh, this is kind of the idea that of origin or source, and we could get this right from like uh, the source of a river or um, you you see this in the idea that uh, uh, God is our source. Like we get life from God, right? Um, Christ is our source. We get life from Christ. Um, In in reference to what you just saw from uh, uh, man and woman, uh, we could say like from that creation story that she was created from the side of man, and so man was her source in such a way, all right? We're gonna talk about that in just a second. But the third one is this. <clears throat> it could spe- specifically mean the topmost, the preeminent. Uh, it's a metaphor drawn from the physiological head. People like uh, Cynthia Westfall and, uh, and uh, Anthony Thistleton, this is where they lay, land. Um, it's basically what you're looking at right here. It's what one we talked about last week. It's this physical thing on top of your head and all that that would mean. But there's a little bit deeper of, a, of an implication uh, for This this could also mean that, uh, well, it did mean uh, a connection where the, the head or the face or the image is a reflection of the whole. So we get this from like Jesus when uh, Jesus would say things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? Um, when Jesus reflects the image or the glory of the Father, he's saying you are seeing it right here. What you're seeing from the face or the head is a direct reflection of the real thing right? And so this is um, probably of all the things, of all the usages, um, and uh, you, can, you can read it yourself. We're, we can give you resources if you want to study this, and you can spend the rest of your life studying this uh, as people have devoted their lives to studying this very type of thing. and But what you have to understand is that the vast majority of usages in the Septuagint, which is like uh, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, all right? So this would have been their Bible, if you want to say it that way, what they, what they would have read. Um, and other Jewish literature, the most common use um, is the topmost, the, the reflection, the preeminence idea. And it carries with it, you can see, it carries with it overtones of authority, it carries with it overtones of source. But it is really talking about when you see this, you're seeing this, right? It is connected to the hope. So the key question, like how do you figure that out? Well, you're not going to spend, I know you've got to go to work tomorrow, okay? Uh, You're not going to figure this out in two weeks. Um, You're not going to figure it out that fast. It's good to continue to study and start to do this. But the key question to figure all that out is in what sense would Paul and his readers have heard this? Um, remember, it wasn't written to us. It was written for us. It was written to the Corinthians. What would they have naturally heard when they heard Paul's metaphor? Well, let's, let's try to dig into it a little bit because I think when we walk through the passage, we'll get a little bit of a sense of what they were probably hearing. And it may lead us to a better understanding of which one of those three options uh, it is. Remember, who controls the metaphor? The one that writes it. What is it? It's taking two unsimilar things or non-similar things, and it's making connection to make a point. And what's going on at Corinth? There are men that are standing up, and they're covering their heads. There are women that are standing up and prophesying, and they're uncovering their heads. And Paul sees this as a problem. It's obviously causing a little bit of tension and confusion in the church. So he's going to step in. So let's figure out what's going on. Verses 4 through 5. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered... Dishonors his head, okay. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as shaving or as having her head shaved. Excuse me. So here's the thing: um, when we look at applying Paul's metaphor, okay, it's going to take just a second. But if we'll take that and remember what his metaphor is and remember the situation, then I think what we can begin to do is we can get a lot of clarity on what in the world is he saying. So let's apply Paul's metaphor really quick. Let's go back to it in verse three and let's do it in reverse order because we're gonna see the foundation example, which is of Christ, which is the head of Christ is God. Now, what did Paul say? What was our, what was our exegetical key? class, in chapter 11, verse 1. Anybody remember? Follow my example example as I follow the example of Christ. So what is Paul's primary metaphor? The head of Christ is God. So I'm going to go, oh, what is Christ's example? Well, how did he relate to God and how does that have anything to say about these veils? So the application for the situation for the men is the head of every man. Oh, I left something off there, sorry. The head of every man is Christ. All right, I can remember it. All right, and then the Christ application in this situation for women. Oh, I know what happened. Christ is supposed to be up there. All right, never mind, sorry. The head of the woman is the man, okay? So here's, here's what's breaking down, right? There's something about the behavior of the men taking, uh, putting their veil on, that is dishonoring the head, which is Christ specifically. And there's something about the women standing up in the congregation and prophesying and praying that is sending a dishonoring message about their husbands, the men in the group. What in the world is that? Well, all right, let's, let's focus on the women. Let's go back to the passage real quick. Go back up to the passage. Go back a slide for me real quick. And so let's look, at, um, uh, let, let's look at the second part of this. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. All right. So obviously we don't veil here, um, but the veil carried with it a lot of connotations. Okay. Um, for one, when, uh, when someone would get married, uh, they would typically, instead of calling it a wedding, they would call it a veiling. Okay, and it would be a way for them to come into a place, and they would cover their heads as part of a, a as a way to show that they were they were now in a monogamous relationship. Okay, they were in this relationship that was uh, uh, was honoring. Uh, it was a social. It was a, a sign of propriety. It was a way for them to uh, actually say to the public, "It's like us wearing a wedding ring on steroids, right?" It's like I'm I'm spoken for. I now have a, a partner here that I'm one with, and they would do that, right? Um, the other thing was that the only person that would really see the hair publicly would be then guess who the husband, right? Uh, It would be a sign, typically, like if you went out in public um, without your head covered, it would be a way for a woman to say that she was available, if you want to say it that way. Um, And so this carried a whole lot of significance. The other thing that's kind of embedded in this is that uh, only certain women could have their heads covered. And so you can think about this, right? Like if you were in a social setting and, uh, one, you weren't married or... um, you had been divorced by your husband, or you were in a, uh, in a specific situation where you were cast aside, um, you would not be allowed to cover your head. And so Paul's basically saying, I want all the women that are prophesying in the gathering, that are speaking and instructing in the gathering, and all the ones that are praying, I want to create a, a unified platform here Because there is not this social standing out there that brings into the church. We operate under a different set of kingdom principles here of the gospel. We're brought into unity. And so he basically just dictates, he says, every woman should get up and they should cover their heads. Um, They should honor someone, they should show honor to their husbands by covering their heads when they get up in the congregation. Um, and so, this is kind of, this is kind of the way the, that it would have been communicated. Uh, so, if a woman were to get up, and she was to stand up in the house church, and she was to uncover her head, it would be a way for, for her to kind of flaunt her freedom. Now, because the question that Paul keeps asking in 1 Corinthians is, uh, he, he does it twice in chapter, I think it's chapter 6, and then I think it's in chapter 9. He says, oh, well, hey, everything's lawful for you. Can you take the veil off? Technically, you can. All right, because you don't, you don't have to do that in Christ. He's asking the question, is it beneficial? And Paul's question of is it beneficial is, does it advance the gospel, right? That's what he's about. He's trying to advance the gospel. He says, is it beneficial for you to do that? You can, you're free to do it, but we, we're going to consider what's happening because there's something that's causing confusion and dissension, right? So you need to do that. So if you go two slides forward for me, this is what happens. She might as well have her hair cut off, but it is, if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now, what is he saying here? All right, so basically, he's, uh, he's using another literary technique or a figure. Of, he's using hyperbole. OK, hyperbole, uh, I can't say it. hyperbole is one of those things you say that sounds like an extreme in order to make a point. Um, basically, he's saying, listen, y'all have already you've decided you want to take these veils off your head when you're up in front of everybody. Um, if you're going to do that, you might as well just shave your head. That doesn't mean a lot to us. All right. Um, but what it meant for them was if you were caught in adultery or you were a prostitute, you would have your head shaved. They would shave your head as a sign, it's kind of like the scarlet letter in a way, it would be a sign to everyone in the community that you were, you, you were not honoring your husband. There was no more way, a bigger way to dishonor your husband in that setting than that. And so he's saying, if, if you're gonna do that, then why don't you just go all the way? I mean, if, if you're going to choose for the sake of flaunting your own freedom, because you can, then why not just go ahead and shave your head? To which they would have said, oh, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. So Paul's making this point where he's saying, well, you've already made a decision based on social norms and what it communicates, so, and you're doing it because it affects you and how people see you. What if you chose to do something that instead of how it re- reflected on you, reflected on your husband and reflected on the gospel? So he's saying, he's using hyperbole, right? You might as well just go ahead and shave your head. To which they would have said, no, 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 no. So what's going on here? You can see Paul's trying to make a point. Women, when you get up in front of a congregation to prophesy and pray, it's beneficial for you to go ahead and choose to cover your head. Otherwise, you might as well just go ahead and shave your head. But they're not gonna do that um, because they've already made a choice, right? Cynthia Westfall in her book, Paul and Gender, uh, she says this in the context of the Greco Roman culture, the veil represents honor, chastity, modesty, status, and literal protection from sexual harassment. So, this veil for me, a bath towel um, carried a whole lot of communication in it in their culture, right? And so, Paul says, if you believe the gospel, then you need and you honor your husband in the situation you need to go ahead and choose a behavior that is consistent with what you say you believe. You need to stand up in front of people and you need to prophesy and pray, but you need to cover your head when you do it. So that's what he said, right? If you go back to the passage, just see it one more time. He says, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But is it a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or head shaved? Then she should cover her head. That's what he essentially says. So that's for the women. So what's going on with the men? Well, verse 7 tells us, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Okay. So remember, women are taking theirs off, men are putting theirs on. So it would be like when I walked up here, okay? Let's just say I walked up the stage, And, uh, of course, they were in a house church, so you kind of have to bear with me. But when they got up on stage, they would do this, and they would begin to pray. What in the world did that symbolize? Well, history tells us that when men would cover their heads in Greco-Roman culture, it would most often mean that they um, they were basically trying to flaunt or make a public statement of their prestige. It would be like the person that walks in the room and says, hey, I want everybody to know I'm important. I'm somebody to listen to. Um, I've got power. I've got authority. They could simply cover their head and everybody would know, oh, he is somebody important. And Paul says that this particular type of behavior is dishonoring specifically to his head. Who is the man's head? Christ. So what is Paul saying was dishonoring? Why is this dishonoring Christ? Well, remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 2? You're like, no. Well, me either. But look, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Basically, Paul is saying this. When you go back to verse seven of chapter 11, he is saying, essentially, when you get up and you cover your head you're trying to show everyone your power and your prestige you're trying to impress everyone with your position what did jesus do jesus lowered himself and so paul's chosen chosen method of communicating the gospel was not to exalt himself which was the problem in the earlier part of the letter right when everybody was trying to advance paul or advance apollos And now we got men that are standing up and they're trying to advance themselves. He says, stop doing that. You're dishonoring Christ. And I think he's doing something really, really clever. I think what he's saying essentially is, you know, let me ask you what's worse. What's worse? A woman that is dishonoring you or you dishonoring Christ. Because I think after the first, verse 6, Probably all the men in the crowd were going, yes, cover your head, you know? And I think when it got to verse 7, they went, oh, oh. You see, when Paul chooses a metaphor, what was the problem he was addressing? Them covering and uncovering their heads. And so he's making a specific reference to what's going on. Some would say that the, what he's actually doing is he's grounding this in creation, Okay? And you can see where people get this. They, they say that there's a created order. Um, and really what this insinuates is there's really, if you go that way, that's one option. But there's actually two options. Okay? So I'm going to give you the two options of how you read this. Because some people say, well, I'm not sure. I'm just going to tell you where I fall. And you may come to a completely different conclusion. But I've got to be honest about where I fall on this after studying it for several years. Uh, let me give you the two options when it says that he is the image and glory of God and woman is the glory of God of man, because that's kind of complicated, right? We'll go on to the next slide, and I want to show you these two, two options. One option is to read Paul's words in 1 Corinthians back into Genesis 1 and 2. And this is what we do a lot, right? We read this, and we're like, oh, okay, so now I understand what happened in Genesis 1 and 2. But remember... The first hearers, who heard it first, what did they hear? They wouldn't have heard this and said, okay, now let's go back and put that in the text. They would have understood when they heard this, based on the metaphor, oh, this is what he's saying, because that's the way language works. So what this would mean, though, if you choose that option this would mean that the male human beings are made in the image of God in a way that female human beings are not. Because remember what he says, that uh, man is the image of God and she is the image of man, all right? So that means that there's two different images, right? And what it would also insinuate is it would suggest that men are the mediators between women and God, that women, that in order for you to get to God, you would have to go through a man to get to God. Um, And that's... um, that's heresy, which we're gonna see in just a real quick second. But that's what you kinda of have to, I think you have to adopt, personally, if, you, if you're gonna take that view. Um, the second option, though, is to read Paul's words in the way that the Corinthians would have heard them through the lens of Genesis one and two, and consistent with Paul's opening metaphor. So this is important, because a lot of times, we, in modern day Bible study, we create elaborate systemic theologies by stringing together proof texts from a lot of different places. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from a, a, a writer, scholar, teacher, professor, pastor, and Ben Witherton, and he says that uh, a text without a context is a proof text for anything you want it to mean. People have used all kinds of proof texts to mean a lot of different things, and the best way to guard against that is to stay in the letter and to stay in the situation and let that influence how I understand what's being written there. And then I go to another letter and another situation. And then when I put all that together, I can then see the correlation. But you got to start in the immediate context of the letter. So let's kind of, let me, let me just, because I made a, a bold statement here um, that there were two problems that I have with the first option, OK? One is that um, men, if you adopt that, then they are actually a mediator between men, and uh, God and women, right? Well, we know that to not be true because Paul said that there's only one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So core to our faith is there is only one way, one truth and one life and that's Jesus. He intercedes for us, we pray through him, we access God through him. There is no other way to get to God other than the person Jesus Christ. And so we gotta be really careful with that. The other problem, I think, with the first option is that um, it goes against Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. And it's what Genesis 1, 26 and 27 said was that men and women were equal image bearers. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image. In verse 27, so God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so, there's nothing in uh, the creation story that suggests that there's two different types of images or two different types of glory. So, what could be going on? Well, I think the thing that actually converges or finds congruence with the context of the letter, if you go back to verse 7, okay, y'all stick with me, go to verse 7 real quick, is when he says he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man, what is he saying? Remember that third option for what head can mean, how it's the topmost, the foremost, it's the reflection. Um, uh, I think the proper terminology is a synecdoche if you're you're uh, an English person in here, which I'm not. Um, Basically, when you see the face, when you see the head, you see the body. I think what he's essentially saying is, when you see woman, it reflects on man. When you see a man, it reflects on Christ. So why is he concerned with the behavior? Is because when the woman gets up and she takes her covering off, it is reflecting poorly. It is dishonoring her husband. When the man gets up and puts his veil on, he is showing poorly who Jesus Christ is. It is not portraying him well, uh, and it is taking attention off of him, and it's putting it on you. And so Paul's staying with his his train of thought. You may be lost. So let me give you a summary. Everybody want a summary? Amen. Amen. Oh, goodness, that doesn't help. Where are the spaces? Okay. (laughs) Okay. Oh, goodness. This may confuse us more. All right. (laughs) There are separate actions. OK. Men were veiling their heads while prophesying and praying. Just look at one in a line at a time, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, men were veiling their heads while prophesying and praying in public. Everybody understand that, right? Okay, I think I've established that. Women were unveiling their heads while they were prophesying and praying publicly. It involved one common thing: their heads and veiling, right? They had one common problem. Both the men and the women were failing to honor, to show honor. The men were dishonoring Christ. The women were dishonoring their husbands. So what does Paul do? He gives them one common solution. Men and women in Corinth continue to prophesy and pray. He tells the women that they should continue to get up and speak in the public gathering and continue to pray in the public gathering, which we're gonna come back next week because this seems to be contradictory what he's gonna say in 1 Corinthians 14. Right? When he says, Women be silent, cliffhanger. (laughs) Men and women, change your current use of the veil on your head. Simple. This is what he wants them to do. I want you to continue what you're doing. All you got to do is instead of covering your head, men, take the covering off because that's dishonoring to Jesus. Women, when you get up and do it, cover your heads because that's sending a dishonoring message. To your Let I me mean, make it really plain. Here's what he says. Paul, uncover your heads while you publicly prophesy and pray. To women, Paul says, cover your heads while you publicly pray and prophesy. That was a lot of work to get to that, wasn't it? You're like, oh, you could have just said that. Okay. <laughs> All right. It wouldn't have been nearly as fun, though. Okay. All right. So everybody good? We good? All right. Let's look at verse 8 and following. Let's finish this thing up. Verse 8 for man did not come from woman but woman from man oh no neither was man created for woman but woman for man oh no okay it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels oh my goodness paul nevertheless in the lord woman is not independent of man nor is woman independent uh, man independent of woman excuse me for as woman came from man so also man is born of woman but everything comes from god Y'all good still? Everybody still good? Okay. Here's, what's, here's basically what's going on, okay? Uh, we don't have time to tackle the angels, okay? Are y'all okay with that? All right. If y'all want to ask a question, we can talk about it tonight at 4 o'clock, all right? But uh, we do not have time for that one. There's a lot of different opinions on that. Um, We don't really even have time to talk about a woman came from man, man came from woman. I know you want to talk about it, but essentially this is what I think that's saying. I think what it's saying is, uh, if you go back to the Genesis story, Genesis 1 and 2, um, the problem again was man was alone. God said, it's not good for you to be alone. So I'm going to create a helper, an Ezra Konegdo, a helper that's suitable for him. And he's going to answer the question, the problem of the man's aloneness. He's gifting the woman to man in a way that strengthens that and their oneness, they become one flesh. So it completes God's picture, right? You take her out, man's still alone and that's not good. He's given, God has given her for man, all right? A lot of people like to take that and they just say, well see, she's supposed to be for his purposes, right? That's not what it's saying. That's an inference that you're applying to that, but it's not there, explicitly. It's for this reason a woman ought to have authority over her own head. Now, translations make a big difference. Um, How many of y'all have ESV? Raise your hands. Okay. How many of people have no idea what kind of translation they have? Uh, How many of y'all have NIV? Okay, how many of y'all have King James Version? Uh, Sean, you got King James over there, okay. My mother-in-law has King James, okay. All those are good translations, okay? There's, there's, there's strengths and weaknesses with every translation. If you have ESV, I saw some hands up, it will say, I think the translation will say, um, that's why a woman should have a symbol of authority over his head. Y'all see that in there? And you're like, well, why does yours not say that? Well, the word symbol was an interpretive choice by the translators of the ESV and others. I think it's in the NRSV as well a sign of authority, is to say that this was supposed to be a sign of authority. That's a specific choice based on that first option, okay? And so they plant that in there. But the word sign or symbol is not in the Greek text, okay? That is a choice they made. Um, the NIV, in this particular sense, it has its strengths and weaknesses too in translation. They all do because they're wrestling with ancient texts and trying to put it in modern language. All right, there's no perfect translation in the sense that they, you know, they, they get everything to be very clear, okay? It's all true and infallible, but it doesn't mean that it's all, always all clear to us. But I think what's most consistent is the way that the NIV translates this, that a woman ought to have her own authority. She, she ought to be able to choose what she does. Right, and the reason I think that one is because what he says in eleven twelve, and the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor is w- man independent of woman, for as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. The argument for the first option is that if she is she came from man, and then she's she's his subordinate, she's you know there to do his bidding um, or whatever. Then what that essentially is going to mean is because he was created first. I'm losing the veil. Um, because she was created first, then that means... I mean, he was created first, that means he has primacy. And she's secondary, right? And so, different of roles. I, I mean, I understand how people kind of talk about that. But essentially what he's saying is, listen, as much as woman came from man, ever since then, guess where all the men have been coming from? Ladies, can I get an amen? Right? Uh, And so he's like, listen, everybody's come from everybody. (laughs) You know what I mean? This is the way this works. But here's the thing. You're not dependent on him. He's not dependent on you. Both of you have one source and one superior. There is one source and one superior. And guess who that is? That's God, right? Uh, I mentioned Ben Witherington earlier. Here's a quick quote from him. I say quick. It's going to fill the whole screen probably for Paul oh there you go for Paul human duality maleness and femaleness is good and is to be celebrated just as the interdependence of male and female is to be appreciated maleness and femaleness are part of the order of creation and also reaffirmed in certain ways in the new creation new creation being after Christ right creation in the beginning new creation Christ in Paul's view people are redeemed as men and women of God and are to continue to be men and women not some neutered or neutral third uh, sort of creature. He finishes it out this way. Ooh, big, big font. It is possible and likely in light of chapter seven, hmm, chapter seven, that some in Corinth thought that through knowledge or spiritual gifts and experiences, they transcended distinctions of gender in the Christian worship. So part of what Mr. Ben or Dr. Ben here is talking about, he's a doctor, he's not a mister, um, he's, he's saying basically that there would have been some that could have possibly thought that, well, now that we're all one in Christ, and this is some of the fears when we talk about subjects like this, that, that Paul's trying to get away from gender, and that is not what he's saying. He's saying that is, that's not a reasonable fear. That's, God created men and women specifically for a purpose, but he didn't create them for levels of superiority or inferiority, right? And what Dr. Ben mentions there is chapter seven. Well, this is 1 Corinthians seven is probably, we don't, we're not gonna do it in the series, but you can go back and read it for yourself. This is one of the most bold statements by Paul. He said, the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband, which they would have all said, yes, that would have been common. But as he always does, he says in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. That would have been a a, a game changer. That would have been a trajectory shift. That would have been a change because of the gospel. This is how when the yeast of the gospel gets dropped into a situation, Paul re-informs how they're supposed to live. And these are, it's, it's important to know that these are the only two places that Paul specifically uses the word for authority in husband, wife, male, female relationships. And in both cases, what does he say? He says the woman has authority over herself, right? That's what she should make the choice, what she's supposed to do. And she should do it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. She should make the decision that honors her husband and she should make the decision that honors Christ. And so, with that in mind, we're almost done. Let's finish this out. For this reason that a man ought to have authority over his, uh, excuse me, a woman ought to have authority over her own head because the angels in the Lord woman is not in, oh, I already did all that. Go to the next slide, Uh, verse 13. And then he finishes it this way. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that a man, that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. All right, do we have any men in here with long hair? I'm sorry. <laughs> do we have any women in here with short hair? Okay, never mind. All right, that's not what he's saying. Okay, that's not what he's saying. That's just a joke, um, a really dumb preacher joke, but it's still a joke. Um, Basically, here's what I think he's doing. He, this is rhetorical. This is what Paul does. He says, hey, listen, I made my case. You ever done this with somebody? You're like, hey, judge for yourself. Do what you want, right? But I'm telling you that we would all say that there's a natural way to see things, and y'all are already seeing some of the natural things. Y'all would already say to the people in Corinth, you would say that it's natural for a woman to have long hair, wouldn't you? they say, yeah, we, we, we think that. Because remember, they shave women's hair if they weren't honorable. And then he would say to the men, like, you know, isn't it common that you would, you would not have long hair, except for when Paul took the Nazarite vow, y'all just look it up, okay? And he grew his hair out, okay? But that's a whole other thing, sorry. This is the way my mind works. Sorry, I'm jumping around all the time. He's basically saying, listen, you judge for yourselves, but this is what we do. And this is the same thing I say everywhere I go. I say to people, choose to do the thing that's beneficial for the gospel. Honor somebody above yourself. Women in Corinth, just go ahead and honor your husbands. Don't flaunt your freedom. Don't cause people to question unnecessarily, because as one of my early professors used to say, the gospel is offensive enough. You don't have to be. (laughs) And they were doing something offensive. And the men equally were doing something offensive toward Christ. They were not honoring him by their conduct. They were trying to take attention off themselves. And what were they doing? They were turning attention off of Jesus, which is what this whole thing is about. Guess what? The church is not about you. It's not. Guess what? The church is not about me. It's not. The church is about who? Class. God. Jesus. It's about Jesus. And so, what Paul's going to do, we're going to get to it next week, but he's going to take this, and he's not finished. This is just an excerpt. This is not a blog post, okay? This is not a leadership blog post or a podcast. He's going somewhere. In chapter 12, we, don't, we won't study this, but you need to study it. He's going to say that God is the one who chooses who to gift. And in chapter 13, the love chapter, he's going to say, how do you apply the, whatever gift you have? Well, the rule for applying it is love. That's how you apply the gift. And then chapter 14, which is where we're going to hang out next week, he's going to say, this is how those things bring order within the church. This is how you turn things away from chaos to order. And he's going to correct some behaviors there too. So here's the thing. Um, I'm going to pray. Um, We were going to do a song, but it's a little late. So I'm going to have Adam come up and finish this out uh, in just a second. But before I do, uh, I'm going to ask that the Lord would speak to us and would help us to understand this text. And if you don't have a a group, we would love for you to jump in and join one. We have journey groups right after this um, that uh, they're gonna go in through the Gospel of John. And then I hope you can come back and join with me over those three passages tonight. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much, um, Lord, that you have come and revealed yourself to us. Uh, You are the true head of your church. Uh, You are exalted here uh, in our midst. You are our one source. You're our one superior um We just want to be, um, we want to be honoring to you. We want to be honoring to one another and we want to hear from you in your spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, as we do that, we can trust that your spirit guides us to truth, uh, creating us humility uh, ability to listen to you and one another. And I pray, Lord, even over, right now, over the time together, uh, when we gather together around your word tonight, for the person that's in here, that this is intriguing to them, uh, and uh, maybe they're seeing the gospel uh, in a light that is attractive uh, for the first time, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to them, meet with them, Lord, and that you would help them uh, in that endeavor, and that we would join their side. Uh, give them the courage in just a little bit to swing by the Welcome Center and talk to uh, one of our team there. And Lord, we give this time to you. God, shape us according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.